the Spartan general Brasidas, with the knowledge of where large portions of Athenian silver were being generated to fund the Athenian war effort against the Spartans, rose up with Spartan allies and an army of helots, the lowest class in Spartan society, to march from the bottom of Greece to its very top, to Amphipolis in Thrace, where they had the hope of stopping the production of their rich silver mines. It was a march where Brasidas and his fellow comrades could very well have met their death. But if this march was not undertaken, it could have meant nothing but devastation to the people of Sparta, as the Athenians were looming over, ready to strike into the heart of Spartan land. To defeat the great power of Athens, it was risks like this that the Spartans had to take. This is the Peloponnesian War, the conflict between the two most powerful cities in the Greek world, and one of the longest and most taxing conflicts in all of antiquity. Hello and welcome to the seventh episode of the AIQ podcast. My name is Alexander Goodman and on this podcast today we are talking about the Peloponnesian War. Was it the end of an independent Greece? So to begin a discussion of the Peloponnesian War, what we must first do is understand the events that led up to this and the causes for this war. So the war was preluded by a period of 50 years which historians called the Pentecostatia, which was the period where the Athenians rose to become one of the most dominant powers in Eastern Mediterranean, forming their Athenian Empire. This rise essentially came from the end of the Persian Wars, which we've also done an episode on if you'd like to go back and check that, where after repelling the second Persian invasion of Greece, Athens led the Delian League in aggressive wars against the Persians, and during this time began to exert more and more influence over its members of the Delian League. This grew to the extent where these states were so influenced by Athens that they were no longer really considered a Delian League and part of a confederation of Poli, but more of Athens as an overlord, while the other cities were subject states. However, it is important to note that we should not think of this in the way one might think the Roman Empire or the early modern European empires worked, as these cities were still allowed to uh, maintain themselves and have autonomy. They were, however, expected to pay tribute to Athens, and this was normally in the form of troops and money. So it is better to think of this more as an Athenian sphere of influence, and they could use their position as the head of league to exert control over their allies instead of having direct imperial rule over them. Now it is worth talking about our sources for this period and it is very important to put into context where our information on the Peloponnesian War comes from. And the answer to this question is Thucydides, um, who was an Athenian citizen and a general who was exiled from Athens in 424 BC for allowing the Spartans to take Amphipolis. So he is an author steeped in a fair amount of understandable bias, or at least has the potential for it. And what we mean by that is because he's a, an Athenian writer, uh, you would assume that he wouldn't like the Spartans very much. However, because he was exiled, he's also not as pro-Athenian as we would expect, so he also is quite fair on the Spartans. Nonetheless, he is our main source for the Peloponnesian War. Now, according to Thucydides, the rise in power of Athens during the Pentecostatia was the main reason for war because the Spartans and the Peloponnesian League feared the extent of Athenian power. To quote him, the real cause, however, I consider to be one which was formerly most kept out of sight, the growth of the power of Athens and the alarm which this inspired in Sparta made war inevitable. If you want to go find that, that's from Thucydides 
23.6. This boiled over in the First Peloponnesian War in 460 BC, which was a much shorter war and so it's often forgotten about. But it is important to know that it happened, even though we aren't going to go into a lot of detail about it. In short, the war lasted until 445 BC and was concluded with the Thirty Years' Peace, which, as you might imagine, was supposed to last 30 years. However, in the 430s BC, Athens engaged in a number of activities, such as the assistance to Corcyra against the Corinthians. They also forced Potidaea, a tributary ally of Athens, but still a Corinthian colony, to dare tear down its walls and dismiss the Corinthian magistrate that were in the city, which further angered the Corinthians. They also placed heavy restrictions on the ability of the citizens of Megara to trade with Athens. Megara being one of Sparta's allies. This eventually concluded with the Spartans saying that the Athenians had broken the 30-year peace and by 431 BC had for all intents and purposes declared war on the Athenians. So they are the events leading up to the Second Peloponnesian War, the main one we're focused on on this podcast. So now let's have a fairly brief overview of this uh, war, but you have to remember this war is very extensive, and as we said in the, in the introduction, it's one of the most taxing wars, so this will take a little bit of time. So the war officially began in 431 BC and ended in 404 BC, and can be largely split up into three phases. The first phase lasted from 431 BC to 421 BC, a 10-year period, and this is known as the Archidamian War, after the Spartan king at the time, Archidamus II. This period was marked by a repeated Spartan invasion of Attica, the part of Greece where Athens is situated and other parts of the Athenian Empire, while Athens used its naval superiority to raid the Spartan coastline. This culminated with Brasidas, who was a Spartan general, and his expedition north to attack the Athenian colonies and allies in the Chalcides. He took Amphipolis, which was a major source of silver and shipbuilding timber for the Athenians, and this was the cause of Thucydides' exile from Athens, as Thucydides was sent north as a general of an army to uh, go and save Amphipolis. However, he got there too slowly, and so Amphipolis was already taken. So Brasidas, in general, wrecked havoc in the northern part of Greece, and also Thrace. However, after repeated attempts to retake the lost cities by Athenians, Brasidas and the Athenian general appointed to lead these campaigns, Cleon, both died. Thus, Sparta and Athens agreed to return cities captured to their original controllers, and they would also exchange hostages. This truce is referred to as the Peace of Nicias, and it concluded the first phase of the war. The Peace of Nicias lasted about six years, and is considered the second phase of the war. Now, despite being marked as a time of peace, this really wasn't the case, as during this period, Sparta was faced with revolts by its allies. This culminated in the revolt of the Mantineans, who were backed by Argos, another polis a traditional enemy of the Spartans. The Spartans, however, eventually defeated this revolt and regained dominance over their allies. Then in 415 BC, the final phase of the war began, where Athens learnt that one of its allies in Sicily was being attacked by Syracuse, and so the Athenians went to help their ally, which will now be known as the Sicilian Expedition. 
This ultimately ended in disaster as the entire expeditionary force was annihilated in 413 BC. This expedition, however, was used as a cause for the reignition of the war between Athens and Sparta, and this was because a man named Alcibiades. Now, Alcibiades was the leader of the expedition. However, he was recalled to face trial in Athens once the expedition landed, and in response to this, he defected to Sparta. When in Sparta, he told the Spartans that the Athenians planned to use their expedition to conquer all of Sicily, and then invade Carthage and Italy, and use troops from these new territories to attack Sparta. And so Sparta decided to renew the fighting against Athens, as they did not exactly like this plan that Athens had put in and didn't really want it to, to happen. However, as we mentioned earlier, the expedition in Sicily failed for the Athenians. So following this defeat in Sicily, the Spartans encouraged the Athenian allies to revolt, and indeed, many of them did. As we mentioned, this expedition that uh, occurred with the Athenians into Sicily was uh, a failure of such. So, following this defeat in Sicily, the Spartans encouraged the Athenian allies to revolt, and indeed many of them in Ionia did, uh, which is on the western coast of Asia Minor. And the Spartans, who are now being supported by the Persian Empire, sent their fleet to assist these revolts. The Athenians managed to survive this mainly because their enemies were slow in coming to their proper aid of the Ionian revolts, who expected protection. When this didn't happen as quickly as they had anticipated, many of the revolting cities returned to the Athenian side. Another reason for their survival was that at the beginning of the war, the Athenians set aside a hundred ships that were only to be used as a last resort. And so after the destruction of their fleet in Sicily, these ships were used and served as the main body of the Athenian fleet for the rest of the war. So in 411 BC, there was also an oligarchic coup in Athens, which overthrew the democratic rule in the city. They also, however, managed to survive this, as the Athenian fleet refused to join the new oligarchs, and appointed Alcibiades as their leader, as although he was a traitor, he still carried much power within Athens. Under Alcibiades' leadership, the fleet continued the war under the Athenian name, and Alcibiades, through political manoeuvring, reinstated democracy in Athens, taking away the oligarchical rule. He also advised the Athenians to attack the Spartan fleet at the Battle of Cyzicus in 410 BC, which they won. And then following this, the Athenians won a string of victories between 410 to 406 BC. But then in 406 BC, a Spartan general, Lysander, won a minor naval victory at Notium, which resulted in Alcibiades not being re-elected as Strategos, and therefore he exiled himself from the city in anger. However, the Athenian navy then triumphed over the Spartan navy at the Battle of Argonusae. But due to bad weather, the Athenians couldn't rescue their stranded crew and were unable to fully destroy the Spartan fleet as they couldn't get past this storm to catch the retreating fleet. This, for some reason, resulted in a trial in Athens where six of the Athenian top navy generals were executed, resulting in the loss of Athenian naval dominance. Seeing this, Lysander, who, unlike most of the Spartan generals, was highly skilled in naval combat, set off with the remaining Spartan fleet to attack the Dardanelles, 
which was the main Athenian source of grain. This baited the Athenian fleet into following him and then subsequently annihilated the Athenian navy. The Athenians, now faced with starvation, had no choice but to surrender. The result of the war ended with Athens losing its empire, and the Spartans assumed control over its territory, keeping all of the tribune revenue for themselves, and this began a period of Spartan hegemony over the Greek world. They also established the rule of the Thirty Tyrants in Athens, which was an oligarchical regime that was set up to prevent the Athenians from rising back to power. As we can see, this war was effectively Athenian self-destruction. They were beating Sparta on most occasions, but due to not being able to completely destroy their fleet and being able to get Athenian uh, ships to save their crews, um, the, the Athenian trial just decimated their abilities as naval commanders. Six of them were, uh, were killed. So it's quite clear to see that actually Athens lost this war mostly due to Athens' self-destruction. So that's a brief overview of the events of the Second Peloponnesian War. And before we go on to talk about more aspects and events happening, it's probably important now to talk about how Sparta and Athens both exerted imperialistic control over their allies. So with Athens, it's their empire, and with Sparta, it's the Peloponnesian League. Now, the first thing to say is that the two power bases of Athens and Sparta came from their ability to exert control and influence over the allies in the leagues that dominated the Greek political world, rather than either of them having imperial territories. So Athens never really expanded as their own territory, they just uh, became overlords of others, and the same with Sparta. So they didn't grow with provinces and governors and things along that nature. However, it is still possible, and I would argue probably correct, to view a lot of these actions of the powers as imperialistic. So to start with then, Sparta, which is the least obviously imperial of the two cities. Sparta's base of power primarily came from its position as the leader of the Peloponnesian League, which was founded by the Spartans in the 6th century. However, the term League implies connotations of Sparta and its allies being on equal terms in the group. But Kagan argues in his book titled The Peloponnesian War that the Peloponnesian League was instead an intricate network of individual treaties between Sparta and each of its allies, with Sparta firmly taking the lead in this alliance. Polite, that entered into one of these treaties with Sparta, would agree to follow Sparta's lead in foreign policy and would be expected to provide troops to fight alongside Sparta in these wars. In return, these allies would generally have autonomy guaranteed by the Spartans and would be promised protection if they were ever attacked. However, this alliance was held together and used by the Spartans on a purely pragmatic level. The Spartans only intervened to protect their allies when it suited them, or it was unavoidable. And when the Spartans did get involved in the conflicts, they compelled their allies to join in to assist them. However, there were some states that were harder to control for the Spartans, namely Corinth and Thebes, who, despite being members of the League, were powerful enough to dictate their own foreign policy and rarely followed the Spartans' lead. 
One of the main ways the Spartans were able to exert their influence over the League was via the Ephors, who were essentially very powerful politicians and diplomats. They received foreign envoys called and presided over the Spartans' assembly, and they sat in the meetings of the Gerousia, which was the oligarchical branch of the Spartan government. It was also their job to negotiate treaties with other cities, and they were the ones who were sent as ambassadors to Sparta's allies to discuss matters of foreign policy. As you can see, these ephors was the means at which Sparta could enforce control over their allies by sending these ephors to basically represent Sparta's own agenda and tell them what they would like them to do. However, because of the nature of the Spartan constitution, there were often internal conflicts, either in the Gerosia or the Assembly, between the two kings or when the board of ephors rotated annually. This meant that there were periods throughout the year where the Spartans would lose its tight control of its allies and they would act independently. So having looked at the function of Sparta and its leagues, we can see both how this system was presided over by Sparta as its head and also how it was still simply a confederation of autonomous states and Sparta's control ebbed and flowed over this time where states would sometimes be under strict control and sometimes act almost completely independently. It is this nature of the league that is exploited by the Mantineans during the peace of Nicias which almost results in the collapse of Sparta's hold over its allies. So now on to Athens and how they exerted influence over their allies. The Athenians, as we have mentioned, essentially assumed leadership of the Delian League after they repelled the Persians from the Greek mainland during the Persian Wars, and over the period prior to Peloponnesian Wars increasingly gained power over their allies and weakened their allies' freedom in foreign policy. One of the ways in which they did this, by forcing their allies to pay monetary tribute towards a common treasury, this was controlled by the Athenians and the Athenians alone. This was because Athenian naval power was so dominant that for the allies to attempt to resist would have likely ended in catastrophe, as many of the members of the Delian League were coastal cities and relied heavily on the use of the sea. So instead of resisting tribute, these cities gave their own fleets and paid the tribute to the Athenians, who then used this money to further fund the expansion of their fleet. It is as a result of this increase in Athenian power and the weakening of our allies that changed Athens' position as the leader of the Dino League to the master of it, and her actions became more and more that of an overlord ruling subject states rather than a leader of a confederation of states as seen through the Spartan ways. One such example of how the Athenians were much more domineering over their sphere of influence than the Spartans was how the Athenians dealt with the Samian rebellion in 440 BC. This essentially started by the Samians starting a war with Miletus, both of whom were members of the Delian League. Now Samos was one of the most powerful of Athens' allies, and at this time still maintained its own fleet, whereas Miletus had revolted previously and thus had been deprived of its fleet. So Athens had to intervene as they couldn't allow a powerful ally to attack another one of its allies whilst they were defenceless. 
The Athenians initially used their naval dominance to overthrow the Samian government and replace it with a democracy. However, the Samian rebels allied themselves with a nearby Persian satrap, which allowed them to hire mercenary armies and retake their city. This sparked a revolt in Byzantium, which was another major ally which allowed access to the grain supply from the Black Sea for the Athenians. And there were threats of Spartan and Corinthian support for this rebellion, so as you can see it's becoming quite a high-tension scenario. However, the Peloponnesian League at this time chose not to intervene, and the Athenians managed to crush the rebellions despite their Persian support. They prevented the Samians from having their own fleet, forcing them to pay tribute and installed a democratic government in the city, showing the extent to which the Athenians exerted control over their allies. It was, as some would say, with an iron fist. These, then, were the two ways in which the Spartans and the Athenians organised their alliances and how they controlled the sphere of influences, with Athens being more strict and regime-like with their allies, and Sparta being more asserting dominance but not having their autonomy taken away. So now we've talked about how the leagues work, let's get back to the topic of this podcast. So, the Peloponnesian War, was it the reason Greece lost its independence? With the result of the Peloponnesian War, the Delian League was broken and disbanded, with Sparta becoming the main power in the Greek mainland. Sparta was supported by most Greek polystates and even had the backing of the Persian Empire. This meant they attained the ability to slowly take control of previous Athenian allies in the Aegean Sea, eventually taking control of large parts of the Athenian Empire, bar Athens and Attica. However, they did install a new government of 30 tyrants in the city of Athens and therefore still held some sort of influence inside their city. The Spartans received tribute and influence over most of the Athenian allies, just as Athens had done over the Dealing League, showing Sparta to be in the utmost control over the allies in the Peloponnesian League. This didn't continue for long, as members of the League started to become disgruntled with Sparta, as they started to slowly take all of the plunder and the tribute from the war for themselves. This, as well as... Sparta turning on members of the Peloponnesian League, such as Elis, who angered them during the war with Athens, meant that there was coming to a turning point. This was where Corinth and Thebes refused to send men to go and help the Spartans to fight Elis. Eventually, Thebes, Corinth and Athens also refused to aid Sparta in their expansion into Ionia, where Sparta invaded the Persian Empire. The Persians responded by paying 10,000 gold darikas to the powerful cities in Greece to revolt against Sparta, with Athens, Corinth, Thebes and Argos creating anti-Spartan policies. Thebans then, with the support of the other members, started a war against the Spartans, starting the Corinthian War. This culminated in the king's peace, which was, as the name implied, orchestrated by the Persian king, which really signalled the return of Persian influence over Greek foreign affairs. Something we will discuss more now. Persia, as we had talked about earlier, held quite an impact in the Peloponnesian War by aiding Sparta with vast amounts of funding. 
After the war was finished, it was clear that Persian interference in the Greek world had not ended by any stretch of the imagination and was one of the reasons for the next change in the political dynamics in the Greek world. Their assistance to Thebes, Corinth, Argos and Athens was undeniably an important factor in their revolt and the start of the Corinthian War, which saw Thebes become the most powerful Greek polis in the region. Persia was able to keep an influence in the changing state of the alliance when they were threatened by other polis. Within the time span of roughly 80 years, Persia had gone from being expelled from the Greek world during the Persian Wars to then being directly involved in Greek politics once again. As previously mentioned, this was fully shown when they mediated the peace at the end of the Corinthian War. This war also caused Greece to become inherently less powerful, with the Athenian Empire falling as well as the Peloponnesian League crumbling to Thebes and turning back to individual polis states. This meant within 70 years after the Peloponnesian War, Philip II of Macedon managed to rise to power, bringing a minor state to become the hegemon of most of the Greek world when he formed the League of Corinth in 337 BC, which he made himself the leader of. This laid the groundwork for Alexander the Great, Philip's son, to quell the last Theban revolt, allowing Alexander to exert full control over the Greek world, providing the basis for his campaign into Persia. Greece had been weakened by their internal squabbling to such a degree that the conquest of every polis was an achievable goal for external threats. It is from this point on until the fall of the Ottoman Empire that Greece does not really see autonomy again and are mostly ruled by larger states. There are short periods of revolts and independence, but even then they are always not far from being reconquered and always part of another state's or empire's influence. So in conclusion, was the Peloponnesian War the reason that Greece lost its ability to have independence? And let's first of all start with the arguments in favour for yes. It is only roughly 50 years between the end of the Peloponnesian War and the start of the conquest of Greece by Macedon. So it is clear to see that during this time period, many things would have occurred. The polis system became a lot inherently a lot weaker. They went from united leagues where they could combine themselves to be able to uh, expel external threats. Um, however, now they are now very independent and they are putting small little areas up against a much larger uh, region that's coming down. And so they're going to have a lot less ability to um, fight against these threats and to prevent them from conquering them. But there are also periods of Greek independence, uh, which is quite important that we need to think about. But they aren't actually, in the grand scheme of things, that significant at all. They don't truly become independent. They would revolt and they would have 10, 20, sometimes only like three years of independence. But it's not long until they are subdued again by their overlords. And they never truly get rid of the influence of those overlords. And that's during the Macedonian Empire. That's during the um, Macedonian Empire when it's cut off and splits from Alexander the Great's empire because it's slightly different. And that's also apparent in the Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire, and then even in the Ottoman Empire. And it's not until roughly around the 20th century where the Greek state as a whole is created. 
And so I think someone could put a reasonable argument that is from the start of uh, Philip II's campaign all the way to the 20th century, Greece is never independent fully. But to counter this, there is an argument for no, and that is that if after the Peloponnesian War, history had not gone as it did, there was still a point where Greece could have retained autonomy and could have stayed in much, much larger unified leagues, such as it was only when the Corinthian War came about that Sparta lost their dominance. And so Thebes and Argos and Corinth all rose, with Thebes actually being the most powerful, as we previously mentioned. But they don't have the ability to hold a league like Sparta did. If the the tides had changed and Sparta was able to keep its big unified league, then potentially, yes, they would have been able to uh, withstand the expansion from Macedon, probably even withstand expansion from Persia if that ever came again. So you could argue that the Corinthian War was actually the nail in the coffin that sealed the deal for uh, Greek uh, autonomy and independence. However, I would have to argue that I believe the Corinthian War was only a result of the Peloponnesian War and how Sparta, after attaining that league, exerted their control. It was only a matter of time till a war like the Corinthian War came about. So I would have to argue, yes, I think the Peloponnesian War was the reason why Greece lost its independence. It'd be interesting to hear what all of you at home uh, thought, though, as well. So put your thoughts down in the comments, or if you're on podcasting sites and you can't actually uh, write a comment, just have a think. Think about what you think is the major factors in why the Greeks lost their independence. If you enjoyed this podcast, then I would really recommend you do some reading on this subject. I'll give you two ancient sources and then a modern scholarship. So I would really recommend you read Xenophon's Hellenica, as long with Thucydides' History of the Peloponnesian War. And for modern scholarship, I would really recommend you read The Peloponnesian War by Donald Kagan, which is a military history that talks about all the battles and the conflict and the leagues themselves. So quite interesting stuff. Thank you very much for listening. My name's Alexander Goodman, and this has been the AIQ Podcast, Antiquity in Question. Next episode, we have a special guest on talking about Constantine I and his reign. See you next time.